Good morning, and the conversation begins here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. It's a little chilly out there, but it's going to go up into the high 50s before the day is over. So a coat now, maybe nothing later. But no matter where you go, always take 94 WIP with you. And when we come back in just a bit, we're going to be talking with a hidden treasure up there in Mount Airy, Pennsylvania, the Arc, Mount Airy Art Garage. All this and more coming up here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon, the WIP time, 601. And we're back, and it's conversation. My name's Peter Solomon. Unique things are happening in all the neighborhoods of Philadelphia. Small projects that are going to make a big difference. One project that's going to make a big difference is the Mount Airy Art, Art Garage. And to help us understand that project and how it's going to make a difference, Arlene Olshan, Arlene Olshan Executive Director of Mount Airy Art Garage. Good morning, Arlene. Good morning. All right. What is the Art Garage? We are an artist hub, uh, a membership nonprofit organization. We've been in existence now since 2009. Uh, we have a small gallery and a gift shop. But in addition to that, we do partnerships throughout the city. And our, the one that we're very proud of is the um, Community of Pride Mural and Literacy Project that takes place at Emlyn Elementary School, public school uh, in Mount Airy. And we've, we're working on our fourth mural with the children there. We teach drawing and painting. Well, that's exciting to me because the Philadelphia school system has had to make lots of budget cuts, one of them being in the art program, hasn't it? Yes. And you're trying to fill in that gap. Yes. All right. I'm having a little trouble with our speaker here. Okay. If you're listening to the station, um, turn it off and we'll just talk to me. Talk to me. Okay. Uh, actually, we are not listening to the station. Good morning, Peter. This is Linda Slotke from the Mount Airy Art Garage. I'm the co-founder. Okay. Um, um, and, uh, you know, we're just... We're a little nugget nestled into Northwest Philadelphia that serves not only Mount Airy, Chestnut Hill, Germantown, Maniunk, but we have members from outside as well. And it's a little organization that's doing a lot of really big things, particularly in the community, making it a better place to live and working with children um, to give them opportunities and experience that will hopefully affect their lives um, in the real world and uh, as they mature. Tell me about those opportunities you're creating. Well, uh, in addition to working on the murals every year, we start in the beginning of the school year and work all the way through to the end of the school year. We're, we're presently teaching about 20 students in the fourth and fifth grade, but the it's not just the drawing. It's not just the literacy. It's it's building pride in, in oneself and learning how to work in teams. The children have an expansive opportunity. We've taken them to the theater. We, we're taking them to um, museums. 
during the school year, and um, it becomes like they're learning how to collaborate with one another and and to treat each other with respect, which is um, and and not only that, the school it really affects the entire school because the the children are growing up saying, I want to be in that program. And they're excited when they come into class at the end of the day on a Friday, which, you know, in, in most people's lives, by the end of Friday, you're tired, not these children. They're full of energy. They're excited and they're enjoying themselves with each other as well as learning. It's also a project where um, we started uh, and focused on one public school with the intention of expanding the program into numerous public schools. Uh, The the changes that we see in there are really um, substantial, if you will, for some kids. I mean, the kids that get chosen, first of all, the staff at Emlyn Elementary School and the principal are just stellar, and they work with us so closely. We're one team. We have literacy teachers from the city. We have... Um, uh, the principal giving us complete backing. We have a lead teacher from Emlyn, a lead teacher from the Mount Airy Art Garage. But what's particularly exciting is that the children that are chosen to be in this program are not chosen because they're necessarily the best students or the best behaved. Um, They're chosen based on um, how teachers feel that this particular project could make a positive impact on their lives. And we've seen so much happen in terms of making friends, uh, working in teams, being proud of your work, not criticizing other people's work and recognizing that each and every one of them are artists and they're artists today. They're artists in this time and at this moment. And that that concept has been spreading through the community as the Mount Airy Art Garage does after-school programs and um, recently completed uh, along with uh, murals at Emlyn School, both inside and out, but recently completed, completed a, a series of murals um, on the side of one of the local restaurants, GOT, and it just, um, it's been getting such positive feedback, and the kids are so engaged, we're very proud of it, and that is a, a big part of who we are in addition to providing artists opportunities for both emerging and professional artists. And you link literacy and art. Tell me more about that. Um, every year uh, we accompany the class with a book. And um, so the first year we were working with Hard Beach um, by Faith Ringgold and um, using her um, uh, quilting as an example, uh, telling the story of of our their lives on their through their artwork, and so we read we read poetry. Um, last year we worked from uh, Henry Osawa Tanner. This year we're working uh, from the work of Romare Bearden, and each year we bring both um, an exemplary artist and a book to accompany each each semester, the whole year. And they're learning about, you know, they're learning literature while doing their painting, while doing their drawings. And um, 
I would also add, Peter, that one of the things that we're seeing is that this work um, through the arts is reflective and improvement and improving on their testing skills with standardized testing. A lot of times kids go to class, these little ones, and they're taught lessons to prepare them for testing, and a lot of it just isn't connecting. Um, but then they go to these uh, art classes, and the same things they're learning in these other classes are now partnered in theory and an idea, but they're, they're doing it in action with their other um, uh, artist classmates, and the teachers are starting to see some very significant uh, improvements in their testing. So it's amazing how everything connects. And also, just so you know, at the end of every year, there is a huge school celebration for the kids in the program, as well as an exam, um, an exhibition at Lovett Library where the children's work is for sale. Um, and these young artists can come and collect uh, the sale money for themselves to be even more proud about their accomplishments because they are artists. And you help them see a result to their work. Yes, yeah. absolutely. How do you pay the bills? I'm sorry, how do we do how what? How do you pay the bills? Okay, well, always the great question. Well, um, we, we've been very fortunate to uh, receive some funding um, from uh, and sponsorship, donations from both individuals, businesses, and uh, community, civic-minded community leaders. Um, uh, the city of Philadelphia yeah. has given us grant money. We've been blessed. Uh, but, of course, this is all driven through individual donations and volunteerism as well. And so local stores, such as Artists and Craftsmen Supply, are donors of the program in art supplies. Uh, we have others who give uh, actual concrete materials for the children, but we're always struggling and in need of funds. So we welcome anyone to visit us at our website or call us at uh, mountaireyartgarage.org because we are continually soliciting funds. We can't continue, we can't expand without the support uh, of the community and beyond the community. Obviously you need cash, you need supplies. Do you need volunteers? Yes, we do. Yes. Um, usually by the end of the year, um, we need artists to help complete the murals, and they're welcome to come in and paint. As well as community members who'd like to be part of the community paint days on the murals. Yes. It's a remarkable thing you ladies are doing, um, bringing art to children who otherwise might not have the opportunity. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. And not only not only the visual arts, but as Arlene mentioned earlier, um, we have growing partnerships with different art institutions and nonprofits in the city who step forward to become our partners because of the project. So in the first year when we were studying Faith Ringgold, we partnered with the Fabric Workshop because they have original Faith Ringgold quilts there and the children took a collage class. So they went down to the to the uh, fabric workshop the next year we went to um the sale university museum where they had and they had a a henry osawa um tanner. tanner piece that the children could look at 
And we're so excited. This year, we're going to be able to go to the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts, where they actually have Romare Bearden's uh, on exhibit right now. And in addition to that, we've had an opportunity to take the children to Philadelphia Theater Company, who has been our ongoing partner for a number of years. And many of these children um, went to their very first theater production ever. And so they, you know, the exposure to the arts is just um, unique, one-of-a-kind experience. Um, and we're just so pleased to be... Uh, a conduit for that, a way that we can, you know, guide some of those children to those first experiences and and build that appreciation in their creativity and where that can lead them. Mentoring them. Yeah. Okay. Um, I guess as a final question, one more time, how do we reach you if we want to help in some way? Um, www.mountmtairyartgarage dot org or call us at 267-240-3302. My name's Arlene Olshin. I'm the executive director and we love to talk to people and maybe have membership with uh, more artists in our community. Um, also, you can reach us virtually on Instagram and um, uh, Facebook. Yes. And if you give them a call or get in touch with them, make sure you tell them you heard it here on Conversation. Please do. Yes. So appreciative of your time. Thank you for considering us. Anytime. 94 WIP. Thank you, Arlene. Thank you, ladies. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. And you're listening to Conversation. My name's Peter Solomon, 94 WIP. We'll be back after these messages. And we're back. My name's Peter Solomon. It's Conversation. Our next conversation is on technology and its impact on our lives. As we welcome here, Jaylene Gildersleeve. Good morning, Jaylene. Good morning, Jaylene. Good morning. How's it going? I'm fine. Okay. Technology really is taking over the world, isn't it? It definitely is. Whether we like it or not. For good, for bad, or is it neutral? I actually think for good if if perceived the right way. So it's all about perception. Okay. Well, but what's the bad perception then? What's the good perception? Well, um, in terms of the, the negative perception, I would say it's more focused around if you're letting the technology use you or if you're leveraging the technology. When you to keep say, it very short. When you <laughs> say using the letting technology use you, we're talking about some of the accusations made against places like Facebook? Trying to influence voting? Yes, and Instagram. And the things that just drain your attention. Mm-hmm. All right. What's good then about technology? Well, it's very dynamic and multifaceted. There's a lot of different ways that it can be used for good, like all the developers that code for good and all the other cool ways that we leverage technology as a collective to create connection, to build the the next wave of cool things like smart cities or IoT. There's so many cool ways that it can be applied and integrated for good. Now, 
when we talk about using technology for good, I use my computer to pay bills, to communicate with family members, to communicate with my doctor. All good things? Um, it's, yeah, those are all great things because if you think about the previous version of that channel of communication, it's a whole different ecosystem. But technology can also be hijacked, and what you put out there for good can be used for evil. Can it? Absolutely. Um, one of my favorite current technologies that most people don't even realize is taking the world by storm is open source. Um, and it's really a more open framework that is a little bit cheaper for us to get, it gives more people access, but it also makes the barrier of entry and the ways of making copies a little bit easier in some ways. I'm not sure I understand. Okay. Well, open source is a technology um, that's been very commonly used with things like AI um, so that more people get democratized access. Okay. Um, so, so, but those, those same infrastructures and those same um, toolings actually have lower barriers of entry to be more agnostic to other systems. So it actually opens them up just slightly for more connections in certain ways that to make them more easily hackable. But um, to piggyback off of that, I noticed that you asked more explicitly, like, what ways are they more vulnerable? Um, with us being this hyper-connected world, we are creating more data than ever before, and that allows more data to be available to be stolen, corrupted than ever before. I think in the last 10 years, for the most part, I've never seen any major cities be held for ransom, like um, I believe like two or three years ago, this happened in Atlanta, where the government literally got held ransom for a hack and literally got charged Bitcoin or was going to get charged Bitcoin, but they ended up not going through or negotiating on the hack. So they ended up having to pay out past $10 million um, just in terms of the city and fees because the systems were antiquated and literally rendered in some ways useless after being hacked, but only for 50000 Bitcoin or $50,000 in Bitcoin. But if technology and the system you're talking about is to democratize technology, I think of the bill I get every month from my cable company, which gives me computer technology access, and I want to cry. It's so big. <laughs> yes, that is, that is the um, premium on data now because data runs the world. And now the, now the people are all wise enough to like, well, yeah, where now people are wising up to, people are already paying for data and paying for my eyeballs. Now that's what you're starting to see is actually coming down and affecting the bottom line. So broadband is now at a premium and things like that, even though countries like America actually doesn't get the fastest Internet technically compared to the rest of the world. All right. It certainly affects finance, doesn't it? 
Oh, absolutely. Um, there's a huge wave in technology currently happening around definance, which is a huge, huge market where we're trying to help those unbanked, which is about 1.7 billion people, gain access to a banking system that will allow them to do potentially cross-border payments and all these other things that will allow them to be fully participating in the actual world ecosystem. Hmm. When you say ecosystem, what do you mean? I'm not sure people understand that term either. Okay. Well, when I say ecosystem, um, I'm using it cross-functionally and multi-dynamically, but it's more or less the, not only your community, but the community that affects other communities. So it's more of the, the global scale. When I say ecosystem, I'm more thinking of the fiscal ecosystem in, in some ways, but also um, like there's different countries that have their own ecosystems or different parts of countries that have separate ecosystems. So ultimately what I'm using is a blanket term for a collection or a group of people's groups. Okay. Um, people unbanking, that's something other thing I don't understand. Help me understand it, please. Okay. I, I will do my best. It is complex. <laughs> but definance, um, which is a huge term, um, in the in the decentralization space, especially around Bitcoin and um, and blockchain and these um, very very revolutionary technologies, um, essentially what they're doing is they're releasing barriers around having to go through the major centralized banks. Um, for instance, like right now, there are major institutions now playing. Um, through crypto and through Bitcoin, like a great example, the other day, Libra just released that they are now doing a partnership, um, or I believe it's, yeah, Libra has a partnership where they will be able to fund Shopify companies. So, and I'll help you be more clear about exactly what that means. So, Libra is a, what's called, um, it's a, what's called a stable coin, essentially, which means it is a coin that is a cryptocurrency, but it is backed by USD to give it validity in the real world by at least one or two current, by, by one currency at least, to where it has actual fiscal value. And its unit of value is similar to like the overall, like it is backed by capital, even though it's a Bitcoin. So that, Bitcoin or cryptocurrency can be used now to make purchases technically on the Shopify store. They're making it to where that is going to be an option to where you can use this type of currency to purchase Shopify things, which will allow it to where pretty much anyone in any nation can buy Libra and then use Shopify on an international scale. So in that way, it is democratizing the access to fiscal opportunities. But cryptocurrency is, I don't know how to explain it or ask the question, in the, it's not real. I mean, you can't, you, you can't, you can't go degree, to the grocery store with cryptocurrency, can you? Well, now actually there are ways in which you can get standard bank cards, like a Visa MasterCard. They now have partnerships with 
Visa um, to where you can use your regular, you can put crypto on a regular debit card and be able to use it for normal purchases. So it actually is literate at the time. And that's what's making it very exciting where it's real. Or you could be using something like Cash App, which you can purchase or have someone send you one Bitcoin, in which case you can then use that in another form on your Cash App card and still use the Bitcoin in that way. So there's multiple ways now that you can easily access your crypto wallets and Bitcoin wallets in your local neighborhood grocery store or going just to get some food. So there's a lot of different ways, and it's getting very agile. But what determines crypto coins' value? I mean, a $20 bill is worth $20 because the U.S. government says it's so. Who says what a crypto coin, what a crypto coin is worth? So that is determined technically by the ledger. And the ledger will tell you how many people are trading this current cryptocurrency, how, what's the volume it's trading at, and how many pieces of it's currently being held. Um, and then there's, there's multiple ways of making value across the board with crypto. Um, so what actually is determining its value, though, is usually um, – the rate of current crypto of that type of crypto in use um pretty much it's like it's like a but the cool the coolest thing about crypto in my personal opinion is the trustless system that it implements and it creates what's called um well but you know as you know the blockchain or maybe not know but the blockchain makes it to where you have a secure means where i don't have to trust your experience, your background, I can just trust you by looking at your ledger. So it's much more clear transparency um, while also offering um, much better security because it's much harder to hack because the information is stored on multiple devices versus just one centralized device. And that's the key to decentralizing finance because it's making it to where the every part of the node has some part of information, but not the whole story. Where's all this going? I mean, what, what do you see in the future? Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping that the future is bright, despite um, all of the, uh, like, random forecasts that you might get from somewhere. I believe that technology is moving very fast. And if we can structure our minds to think more systematically and harmoniously, we can keep up because that's really the key component to me. Technology is meant to be a tool. Um, typically, it's, we ideally use it for connection, like we're using it for right now. But I think sometimes we get a little lost on the path. So it's kind of critical for us to remember to stay harmonious, but also be cognizant that the future is um a big unknown, and with any shift in variables, it's very important that we use technology for not only what it was for, but even sometimes like creative ways that we might not have thought of to really create a world that's um, more inclusive as well as more optimized in certain ways. That's where I think we're actually headed. Um, whether we like it or not, like the IoT wave the sensors everywhere this is wonderful thing called sensor fusion where coders can literally take a sensor from 
your new appliances, connect them to sensors from your new car, connect them to new sensors to that are in your yard, in your garden, or at your farm, and then put all of that data in one place to keep you centralized and up-to-date on hundreds of things that previously it would have taken you 45 minutes, or I mean 45 like, I don't know, hours just to check all of the different information that you might get from all these different sensors in one dashboard. And you can click and change them from one location. We're finally getting to that wave of the future that people were, were looking into or hoping for 20, 30 years ago, where not necessarily we're flying, but where we're hyper-connected, but an actual connection and things that actually move the needle and actually shift the the and actually disrupt markets. Like for instance, another huge trend that you might see in the future of work is remote work. There's tons of people on Fiverr. There's tons of people on Upwork and all these other um, millennial sites, known as millennial sites, where you can go and get work from pretty much anywhere on the planet um, of different skill sets and of different backgrounds. And I think that's really another big flash forward of what the future is looking like because digital nomads are on the rise. But with all this smart stuff going on, many people fear Big Brother poking in your life and the data and the work being used for ill, not for good. Absolutely. I completely agree. Um, and I feel like that's a very avid concern, a very valid concern, um, because Big Brother is, I mean, it, it, it's part of the game. When when you open yourself up to these the newest thing, if you have the newest iPhone 11, that means you have the latest and greatest in smartphone technology. You have the, one of the fastest computers on the planet's core processor in your pocket that's ever existed. And simultaneously, you have the new NSF chip that allows people to do near-field communications with your phone or the newest Bluetooth chip, which also allows people to do the nearest communication with your phone. So there is a lot of ways that your phone can be hacked. The one thing that you can start to do is keep yourself educated and research. And I know a lot of people don't want to hear that the game is research, but technology is evolving every single day. It's more about naturally habituating the process of, of growth in your technology and of you and with your technology. Um, some you can't be a hundred percent foolproof on the Insulation of your te of your tech, but you can be hyper cognizant of little things that might make you at least secure your peace of mind while you are going in this evolution of change and all this technology feels like it's listening to you or around you in that way. Because it is frightening. The potential is frightening, certainly. What do you say? Oh, to, absolutely. What do you say though to people who are frightened by it? Um. What I would say is it's sadly one of the realities where you, if you're scared of it, it's more of starting the conversation and seeing what, I mean, understanding what scares you about it. You, your fears are valid because a lot of this technology is literally next level. But what I would encourage you to do is go to some groups, be around some younger technologists, 
interface with communities uh, of different backgrounds because I really believe that the omni-generational approach is one way that you can add a lot of value, not only to yourself or to the community around you, but for the future generations like your nieces, your nephews, by by taking the time and really seeing what scares you about it, you can actually help others create better technology for you specifically. Like if you're scared of technology, we use this thing on the other side of technology called human-centered design, where we're designing technology for our end users in mind. So if it's not optimized for you, or you don't feel like there's technology out there for you, and you find a gap in the market, that's actually an option. I mean, that's actually a great opportunity, and you'd be amazed at how many researchers and young, bright entrepreneurs out there trying to create better technology that is less intrusive and more trustless and more valuable to different different demographics. That's why technology is evolving every day. So my main thing to someone who's scared is to be open and give it a chance because it's here to stay. <laughs> and yeah, it might get better in a week or so, but if you don't catch on the train now, sadly, it's moving very fast. So it's not going to stop for anybody. It's just going to be a, a continuous learning curve. So I definitely will recommend that they do some research. So it's get on the train or get run over. Well, not just get on the train and get run over, because that sounds aggressive, but get on the train, or you can chill on the sidelines, but just be ready to watch more content, more videos, if they wait longer, because it's going it's, it's to continue with learning curve. Do you have a website we could go to? Oh, absolutely. So... Miami DevCon um, is really a great opportunity for you to create that community and that connection and start that conversation about the positive things technologies can do for you while also connecting to developers of premium talents that design these new technology like blockchain, like um, IoT or Internet of Things, like artificial intelligence, and like AR and VR or augmented reality and virtual reality. So I think Miami DevCon would be a great start-off point if you're really excited to get the conversation around policy and some of those securities that we were talking about earlier. I think that is a great place to also get that started. It'll be in Miami, Florida, and it'll also give you an opportunity to like mix together two things that typically wouldn't be together. Developers who are usually code monkeys in, in their labs and in their Menlo parks get access to the beach and one of the biggest party cities, but more focused towards the impact of a city, which most of the time they're more focused on the turnip. <laughs> Is there a book you can recommend? Hmm. Oh, absolutely. For So for technology, I think a very good one would be Stephen Case, Third Wave. It's a great book that goes through the different levels of how technology has evolved previously and how it continues to evolve moving forward. And I'd like to say thank you to Jolene Gildersleeve for giving us a crash course in technology and where it's taking us and whether we should be careful or not. Thank you, Jolene Gildersleeve. Thank you, sir. Awesome. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. More in just a bit.
And we're back, and I'm going to please to be I'm pleased to welcome now back an old friend, Dr. John Huber. Dr. Huber, a clinical forensic psychologist and sort of our expert on all things mental health. Good morning, Dr. Huber. Good morning. Pleasure so, to have you so back. happy to be back. Okay. I want to check in with you about what's going on because so much stuff is going on around our mental health, both individually and collectively. And one of the things I know that I find a little fascinating is government, some government officials are suggesting we pay conception fees and obtain a parenting license. What do you think about that? You know, that's a pretty slippery slope, I think. Uh, I think there's a lot of uh, people who would be very upset with that. And I think there's a lot of people that say, hey, that's a good idea. When we have, you know, I, I think it would <laughs> really targets uh, minority groups, uh, primarily uh, poor groups, because they can have kids. Essentially, they don't have the money to pay for the for the permit, so to speak. And uh, they're and if they do have kids, they're not going to have ten or fifteen of them. And uh, you know that that's kind of a tradition when you have, for example, migrant migrant farm workers. You have lots of kids, and they help out. And there, you know, we have age restricted laws, you know, and and work laws for young children, unless. There are special circumstances. One of them are farm children, and uh, that type of mobile farmer uh, can uh, reap a lot more money and a lot more rewards, at least uh, when the kids are strong enough to actually produce significantly than they would ever be able to do by themselves. I think that could create some uh, real problems. You're going to end up with more serious, life-changing in farm implant accidents where people are losing hands, fingers, maybe even dying through combines and things like that for young people who aren't necessarily as adept or, or trained at, at utilizing those tools. And, you know, you're talking to somebody who, who worked on a, on a farm, you know, and my first job was topping onions and planting onions in the mud and then picking okra and hauling it by the, the pick uh, and, and, getting paid by how many loads I can carry on my back and uh, moving up to factory, you know, the, the tractors and being able to run the combine and, and combine the, the corn and the cotton and like that. So uh, I, I've seen it and it's, it's a very risky situation and families that depend on those children to make their livelihood, uh, you know, we're, we're going to see a shift in, the what we consider the core family anymore and it's going to be pretty crazy because we're going to see people now if i have to pay i want to make sure i have a blank whether it's male or female whatever society thinks is more valuable at that moment and uh it's gonna it's gonna increase people using abortion for birth control in that situation once we know the sex it's not the right sex we need to abort and try again and hope for the other sex in order to you know, do that or, hey, let's just do IVF and vitro fertilization and make sure we only have male embryos. And uh, wealthy people will be able to do that. People who aren't as wealthy will be doing things through their through their witch doctors, through cultural norms. You know, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a group of people in Asia that I've been lucky enough to talk to and get familiar with and their old folklore says that if you wanted to 
make sure that you're having a son that you're supposed to use uh, a special sexual position. And in that position, when uh, conception comes to completion, the woman is supposed to bark like a dog. If she barks like a dog, it will be a boy. If she meows like a cat, it will be a girl. Uh, that's bizarre. But be that as it may. But some people would argue you need a license to have a dog. You don't need a license to have a kid. There's something wrong with that. Well, you have to have a license to, to you know, make tortillas, to put fingernail polish on people's nails. Uh, there, there is something to be said for that, having a minimal level of competency. And that's all that would say is you have a minimum level of competency. So now are you now discriminating against uh, mentally retarded individuals or people with, with uh, significant head injuries, for example, or you know they had suffered from some sort of anoxia and now they don't meet that criteria they can no longer be parents. So are we going to go through and just sterilize them to keep them from accidentally having that happen? And then who's going to pay for that? But wouldn't having a license have an impact on our child abuse statistics? That that might have an impact if it was easily and clearly obtainable that information to know whether they're actually potential child abusers. You would have to go to somebody like me, uh, a forensic psychologist, and have an evaluation being done. And within that evaluation, you know, you have to ask for very specific type of questions about risk. And that's a very difficult and very slippery slope to ride on. Uh, the evaluations that do that, in my office, we started about $5,000 for those, and uh, it can be a 10-hour evaluation, and uh, it can run on even longer than that. We typically just do the 5000 as a flat rate because we know uh, there comes a point where, you know, to be, you know, you, can I ever get to 100% certainty if I say, okay, this person's got these traits, but I can't be 100% certain that they'll ever offend. Uh, there's some pieces that I can do that with. There are other pieces I can say he's got these other traits and I have a 33% chance that he will not offend in the next year. And I can say there's a 66% chance that they will. Is that is that worth, you know, letting that person out? And they haven't done anything. They're just asking to get a permit to have a baby they haven't come to me because they committed a crime when people commit a crime a judge looks like that at those two numbers and they decide whether they're going to keep them locked up or not okay does that make sense yes absolutely all right um moving on a lot of people have said they would break up a relationship because their partner left dirty dishes in the sink, didn't put down the toilet seat, leaving the refrigerator open, those kinds of things. That can't be much of a relationship if that can destroy it, is it? Well, Peter, what, what we find out is uh, a, a lot of silly things cause major, major breakups, just like a lot of silly things historically has caused 
battles and loss of life between two neighboring countries. Uh, silly, silly things. The typical group that we look at uh, that causes most divorces comes down to, to money. And it can be not enough. It could be too much. It could be a lack of management. Or one person has management skills, the other one doesn't. could be that neither one of them has management skills. Or it could be that they both have management skills, there, but they're both so horrid that all they do is, is hurt themselves. That is typically the number one in general. And then we start getting into relationship issues that include, man, I don't like the way you raise your children. But it also includes things like, the toilet paper roll goes down the front, not down the back of it. Or we squeeze the toothpaste from the very end and we curl it up as it goes so we we save on waste. Versus, no, you just squeeze the tube until it's empty and then you start flattening it out. Uh, these are actually issues my wife and I had to work on. And we lived together for almost three years working on those issues before we came to a compromise and then we said okay we can probably live together for real and uh went and got married so and to this day there's some things that were this is the way i want it done and there's some things were this is the way she wants it done we had to negotiate and i found out very soon in the relationship that toilet paper going over the front of the roll was non-negotiable so that had to not be a deal breaker for me. And we we have we have done it so far. Now my son and my daughter don't know a world without toilet paper coming down the front. So it's not an issue for either one of them. But my son is just about to turn 18. He's got a girlfriend. Who knows? Moving in together. If all of a sudden toilet paper becomes the the knife that, that cleaves the, the marriage in half. It's it's really bizarre because we get stuck into things that are behavioralized. We like the comfort of doing things the same way every day, all the time. We feel like we have a sense of control when we do that. Leaving dirty dishes in the sink. This was my thing. I always got up because I was the the person in the in the as roommates in college. I was the guy who cooked, so I would do the dishes. But I did the dishes in the morning because I had them trained to rinse the dishes and put them in the sink. And if if I had to go dig for dishes in bathrooms and bedrooms and stuff, it only took once or twice of me kicking their doors in at, you know, 5, 36 o'clock in the morning that I got them trained to put the dishes in the dishwasher or in the sink. And then I would, on occasion, we would use the dishwasher, but, you know, college is trying to save money. I would hand wash in the mornings and I would have, you know, my soup bowl from last night is now my cereal bowl and it's nice and clean. And I know it's clean because I washed it, not somebody else who, you know, uh, do I want to trust some guys whose mothers never made them make their bed and they're going to have, they're going to know how to wash dishes all of a sudden. Uh, I, I like to cook. I cook well, uh, because of that, I never really bought food. My roommates bought the food and I cooked it because they didn't know how, but they had it. Mama, mama makes it. Mama makes spaghetti this way. Okay, buy the stuff. I'll do it. And uh, <laughs> then it, it, it uh, moves into a marriage. 
and all of a sudden you got maybe two people who are skilled or one person who's skilled and the other person who's not really skilled doesn't really know how to pick a menu and plan for feeding for a week and those types of things. Um, in, in my house, I am the grocery shopper. I shop for the week, and I know, you know, we're going to have chicken this week, and one night we might have shrimp, or we'll have, you know, some some salmon. But uh, this week's a, a a short week on beef, and then oh, they had a really nice prime rib, and you know, Easter's coming up, so I'm going to get that, and I'm going to start brining that prime rib, but it's not for a couple weeks and getting everything ready and getting my herbs and I start looking for herbs. I got a couple weeks to shop for that. Uh, and that is how my, my family is kind of conditioned. My daughter likes to go shopping for groceries with me. She thinks I walk too fast, but I walk too fast because I know what I'm getting and I know where it's at. And she's kind of like I was in the library. I want to peruse and see all my options. You know, oh, that book. I wasn't looking for that, but that's interesting. So, so you know, but that's part of being 50 and being 15. You know, you just have a different set of goals. But that has happened in our family. I think it happens to everybody's family. And if you're not excited about your role, you don't think you're very good at it or you feel like it isolates you, the one thing all of these situations have in common Besides being stimuli for breaking up relationships, when people come into my office with these issues, the number one thing I look for, are they still communicating? If they sit on the couch and they won't talk to each other, it's over. There's nothing I can do. If they come in there and they're yelling and bitching at each other, I hate the way you do this. Oh, and you're you're an ugly cow, you know, and why do you have to do that? And just... It doesn't matter how bad and mean it is. If they're yelling at each other, I can fix it because they're still trying to talk. And I can teach them how to talk to each other so the other person will listen. And they'll learn to listen and we'll get through things. So regardless which one of these problems it is, as long as they're still talking about it, or in this case yelling about it, I know we can fix it. We have a great chance of fixing. I'm not going to say it's 100%, but I'm going to tell you, you know, if they still if they still have that itch in their eye and they still lo- love each other, I would say it's over 85% effective that I can fix them. Okay. 86% of Americans are satisfied with their life. That astounds me that the number is that high. Well, it's the highest since they started studying this, like in the 70s. You know, and you compare it to Jimmy Carter's era, you know, it's kind of easy. You know, nobody had to sit in line for six hours this morning to get five gallons of gas. Not not about filling your tank up, but just getting five gallons of the ration gas. I remember those days. And a lot of people still do. A lot of the boomers still remember. It's fresh on their mind. So what is really sparking this whole situation, I think, is the fact that more people, middle class in general, you know, for the first time in about, you know, 15 years, they feel like they've got opportunity again. You know, we went and the last administration, we were really, uh, what do they call it, anemic, 
as far as jobs were considered. Mm-hmm. We were growing some, uh, but they weren't manufacturing jobs. And then you had the Obamacare that came in that said, oh, well, unless you're working uh, more than part-time, you don't have to have Obamacare. So people's jobs were class changed to uh, part-time jobs instead of full-time jobs. So they lost benefits and they were only working 20 hours a week. So but they also had to get a job somewhere else to work another 20 hours to fill that up. And, you know, those things are going away and people are getting good jobs again. And, you know, by lifting some of these restrictions, businesses have come back into the United States. We now have manufacturing jobs that we were told will never be here again. And, you know, I, I was just out in Detroit in, in the fall, in November. And, man, people out there, yeah, there was a UAW strike going on, but everybody there was so upbeat and I just happy. And they're, they're, you're not from Phil, or Phil, or not Philadelphia, you're not from Michigan, are you? And I'm like, no. And they start telling me stories. You should have seen that, that, those buildings right down there. You know, four years ago, the windows were all knocked out of them and there wasn't anything going on there. And under this new administration, he's brought money in. It's been rebuilt. The contractors have made money. These buildings are open and businesses moved in. And my son has a real job that his college degree got him. He actually had a place to work here in hometown. And they're excited about it, and they're happy with the improvements. Now, nobody seems to be happy with with the uh, tweets, you know, the the juggernaut left punches and right punches about how somebody is is evil or some, you know, like that. But th- the people that are that are seeing their world better are like, you know, he's not a politician. I don't ever expect him to stop doing that. He's not a politician, and he does that and it reminds me he's not a politician i may not like what he says but i like the fact that he's not a politician he's planning to go back out into the workforce when this is over and he's trying to make our work environment better and it's making it better for me and i heard that for five days straight in three different towns in in the in michigan detroit was one of them so this this percentage number sort of is a reflection of how people are feeling about the current economy and the current resident of the White House. I, that's, my, that's my gut feeling right there. Yes, sir. Mm-mm-mm. All right. And then six in seven Americans are satisfied with their personal lives. Another reflection? Another reflection? Um, you know, I think we, I would like to do more work on that. I mean, I, I hear that. And uh, I want to go look at how that has changed in states like California, Colorado, Oregon, where legalization of recreational use of marijuana, and in Colorado, uh, in the city of Denver, recreational use of psilocybin mushrooms has been uh, not legalized, but it's no longer prosecuted unless they were intending to sell. So if you're not a junk, a, a person selling them, uh, they're not going to, to do anything. But for personal use, they're going to, you know, they're just going to let you go, maybe give you a misdemeanor you know, parking ticket type thing. But uh, I want to see what the correlation is. Is is that availability to those medications improving people's psyche? Because we know, and we've got research studies, and in my practice, uh, we, we have permission to use some, uh, let's just say, off-label treatments to treat certain things, and we're having amazing outcomes, for example, uh, think of alcoholism 
Dr. Drew Pinsky has uh, the, the Dr. Drew Show. He used to do Celebrity Recovery on MTV. And I've talked with him several times. He's really a leader in addictive sciences in in this country. And he says the best programs have 8% success. That means 92% of the people who go through those programs fail. And the business model for these recovery places is just that. They expect 90 to 92% of the patients to come back from to them in one to three years. And it may not be the same patient coming to the exact same rehab, but you'll go to my your my patients, the 90% who failed will go to somebody else's and I'll get theirs because everybody's trying something different because it didn't work the first time. And what we've been doing, uh, we have started using ketamine for uh, detoxing our heavily addicted individuals with alcohol and are able to withdraw them with very few, if any, withdrawal effects. And then we change how we administer the medicine at that point, and we use it to treat the alcoholism directly. And in about 30 days, uh, we are we are able to sit back and, and create a non-drinking individual who doesn't want to drink as opposed to a, a recovering alcoholic who, oh, I could do, I could jo- enjoy a beer right now kind of an attitude. Mm-hmm. They don't want to drink on this, and we have over 80% success rate. That means only 20% are having to go find another way or come back for another treatment. In fact, we did 14 gentlemen last year, all of them 30-plus-year alcoholics, uh, one of them started at 10, had his first drug rehab at 13, and continued on until he got to us at 60 years old. And he went through our program, and he did pretty good, and then he fell off the wagon. He was the one out of out of 14. He was the one patient who fell off the wagon. Uh, and as of yesterday, no, yeah, yesterday, he was at five months sober. At this point, with the boosters, we jumped in and we we just readministered things slightly different with a different therapeutic touch on the end of it. So fine tuning it. Each person has the right combination. It just we have to find it for them. Four in ten adults just can't stop working. The workaholic epidemic. You know, and that's a that's a touchy one for me because I'm working all the time. Ask my kids. I mean. I'm up here. I'm in Texas, so I'm an hour earlier than you are. Um, two nights ago, I had a show in Nebraska, and it started at one o'clock my time. <laughs> you know, and I'm always up doing this, but I don't look at it this like it is work. I this is this is fun. This is informative. I learn about the people who listen to me because. You know, you give me feedback from people you know in your community. Sometimes we type, take calls. And this this one show at 1 in the morning, we did take calls. And uh, I learned from people in North Dakota what their struggles, what their concerns were, what is the most pertinent to that sampled group of random callers. And uh, had no idea what, what calls, if any, I was going to get. In fact, uh, I'm in... New York City next Sunday morning, yeah, 
and I will be on a radio station there. I don't want to. I don't know if you, you know, I can list names or whatever, but yeah. I'll be there. And they've given given me two hours uh, straight. And the last time they did that, they did that was last summer, and uh, it was a sports station. They gave me two hours straight, and we had people on hold uh, 30 seconds after they said the phones were, were open, and we had just had to take first come, first serve. And uh, that's all we did for two hours, and we had another 10 or 15 people on the line after the show that I talked to directly. Does that say something, though, about our collective mental health? I think it says that, we're becoming what I want, you know, mainstream mental health. I want people to be able to discuss it and be more open and start realizing that it's not a broken thing. It's a human thing. And if everybody knew what was going on, we could definitely handle these situations much more effectively before we have to get somebody totally inundated and snowed under in some situations by all the uh, antipsychotic medications, the antidepressants, the anti-anxieties. And if we, I mean, if you go back and look at American history, American Indians, you know, they, all their their people were utilized. It didn't matter, you know, if they were nonverbal or if they had brain injuries, they were utilized. But none of them seemed to have the psychosis. There was no history of them having uh, a full-blown major depressive disorder and, and killing themselves. In fact, they did lots of things like meditation, counting coup, uh, getting going on a, a, a soul-searching uh, journey in, individually by themselves. They would go out and you know do some ritualized camping and uh, some survival skills, and it, those things brought them back to the earth. They also have a belief set the shaman did for these Indians that. Anywhere you're at, if you get if you get cold, get a cold and start sneezing and coughing, the place you got that cold within about 300 to 600 yards circle around you, everything you need to cure your to cure your illness is right there where you got the illness. Hmm. And they would use homeopathic medicines from the seeds and the and the roots and stuff of the different plants. Of course, they had a good history with them. And they'd work through them, and they knew that, yeah, there's some horseradish running wild, and that could clear somebody's sinuses out if you grind the root up and have them snort that, you know. <laughs> they, but they know it, and they know that, you know, the bark from certain trees actually created a painkiller. We call it aspirin today. So they utilized those things, but they didn't have reports of mentally ill people among their ranks. Why? Because they stay grounded. And some of the new stuff I do, I have my patients. In fact, I do it when it's not solid frozen, but I do it is I go outside every day and I spend 15 to 20 minutes sitting in a chair quietly without my cell phone, looking at the clouds, looking at the dog running in the yard, the squirrel across the fence, watching the trees. But I actually have my bare feet touching hard earth and the research on how it grounds our brain and we exchange ions between the earth and our body primarily through our central nervous system which includes our brain is uh, just amazing in the first place that we actually can measure that kind of stuff but we see it we can mechanically see it through these sensors 
and it changes your brain chemistry. And I think the Indians had something going on there about get back to nature when things aren't going right. You know, pull yourself together, and it's something you've got to do, not your family. You know, if your family member has a problem, they need to go do their ritual thing. And it goes to, hey, you can help yourself. You can fix yourself, but you may have to go to that shaman to show you what you need to do in the process. And sometimes the shaman will go with you and help the process, especially if they were doing some of the the peyote and that kind of stuff, which we started looking at in my practice. And we see things like uh, research out of major universities, psilocybic mushrooms, a full dose of psilocybic mushrooms for you to hallucinate for a couple of hours and then come down from, and you wake up the next morning and you fill out an antidepressant inventory and you're no longer reporting depressive symptoms. Mm. And, And the people in those studies fill out a different report, a different test for depression every week, once a week. And they go six months before one of the patients starts reporting some depressive symptoms. So we could do a twice a year treatment where you go into a clinic with a shaman or a medical doctor who's trained and these people are induced with psilocybin mushrooms. They go on a, a significant trip, psychedelic trip of let's say three to four hours. And then the doctors are there to help them kind of detox at the end of the day, make sure they didn't have any adverse reactions, heart rate, that kind of stuff, no palpitations, no other medical issues. And then they kind of give them a bill of health at the end of the day. And a a non-patient friend of theirs is then responsible for getting them to a hotel room where they can have have a nice bath, nice shower, get a good meal, and go to eat. And we found some of the most critical things in every modality that we treat, whether we're treating PTSD, whether we're treating depression with psilocybin mushrooms, PTSD with ketamine. What we've decided is one of the key factors that we've instilled in this there is to be no social media and no news when you're doing going through our program. And so the day of, none of that at all. But if you're in our inpatient program where we may give you these treatments several days in a row, the, the, the safe house or sober house or whatever you want to call it that we have provided for them has no TVs in it, has no uh, easy way to get, access to Wi-Fi. Now, we don't isolate people 100%. They are allowed to uh, come to the office and work with one of our our employees. They can sit out on the phone and call up a family member, uh, kids, whatever, and they get up to an hour. Unfortunately, it's supervised because we want to make sure that somebody doesn't go, oh, and your cousin Billy got killed today. Because part of what happens with these psychedelic drugs is it releases your normal uh, filters that help protect you from that type of emotional assault. And we want to protect you until your body starts taking over again. In the meantime, we want to inundate you with good vibrations, good thoughts, meditation, yoga, get a massage. We want all these things going on so that you get back to understanding that we are human beings put here on this earth to be human and we work to be human. We are not here to work. 
and uh, that's significant in our recovery with our patients. Perhaps the most famous story I've ever heard about the kind of approach you're talking about is Cary Grant being on LSD, and he said it changed his life for the better. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, ketamine can be very much like LSD, except why I like it. If you give a patient LSD, it has a four-hour half-life. That means they're going to start hallucinating, and they're going to continue hallucinating for four hours, and then the hallucinations are going to start changing and getting weaker for another four hours. So they're going to have eight hours of hallucination. That is immensely draining, not just emotionally, but physically. Ketamine has uh, a 15 to 20-minute cycle. So once the ketamine kicks in and you start having those hallucinatory effects, you're going to be done within 40 minutes, 45 minutes max. Now, your psychomotor retardation, the coordination is still going to be sticking around there for a couple hours, but that's also how I can tell when, you're, when your defense mechanisms start locking up and you, you're a little safer. You can be around more uh, negative things and they're not going to hurt you as much. So it's, it's outward signs to me as a therapist that, hey, now I can go in there and dig on some therapy stuff that you may not have been willing to talk to before, but now your barriers are down and we can talk about it. And it's amazing some of the work we get through. I, I had one patient who had been in my office for six years and uh, got in there and literally in three days we'd gone through all this trauma and assault he'd been exposed to that he never mentioned in six years. And uh, literally uh, he's, he's, you know, this was last year. Uh, I see him about every three months and we go and he gets a, a bump ketamine infusion and then we sit and chat afterwards and then his wife drives him home so uh that that's pretty much a success story and he's not on antipsychotics or antidepressants anymore at all period and you're listening to wip sunday we used to run into wip sunday when i wasn't looking as we talk with dr john huber our expert on all things men mental health here on 94 wip all sports radio my name's peter solomon Dr. Huber, I think one thing those stories do tell us, though, is if you're going to do that kind of therapy, do it with someone who knows what they're doing, not with the neighborhood. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, who's teaching that? Nobody is, okay? Um, We have uh, ASCP, ASKP, the American Society of Ketamine Physicians, We've had uh, two conferences. The numbers basically tripled from the first conference to the second one. The first one was here in Austin, Texas. The second one was in Denver. Uh, Both of them were in September. And uh, just amazing experience uh, where we get the research because it's not being allowed to be published. And you hear the stories where, Oh well, you know Johnson Johnson can't make money off of this, but there there are hospitals' biggest funder, and they won't let us go and put it in a peer-reviewed journal that any of the medications they're manufacturing or, or searching for are, have releases in. So you know it limits the doctors, but they can come there and present their their peer-reviewed uh, research, and we don't publish it. So it's uh, you go in there and you learn about it. 
firsthand. Uh, you know, we have a publication that's been peer-reviewed, and uh, a lot of times the patients get, uh, or the patients, the the visitors to there, the, the physicians who are learning about this from the researchers, they get their own copies, kind of uh, blind copies, uh, that they can't share with anybody, but they've gone to the conference now, and they actually have data to support the appropriate use of ketamine for certain types of situations. Amazing. Amazing how things are changing. And like need. You have a need. We, we, we try to fill it. We're tired of, you know, working with people with, with alcoholism and with heroin. I mean, we have a heroin addict. Every time I see one, it comes out, I need to get clean. I need to detox. we got to get in a hospital because the, the DTs are so life-threatening with heroin. And I know that the minute the heroin's out of their system, the first thing that person wants is another line of heroin. Absolutely. I need heroin. I get them, and we detox a special way. It's taken us about five years to figure it out. And my patients report to me, oh, you're jacking with my mind. This, y'all are jacking with my mind. And we're like, what do you mean? I've, I've done this 10, 12, 13 times, and I always want heroin when I'm clean, once I get clean. But I absolutely don't want heroin. You guys are jacking. What did you do? You're playing with my mind. They, 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 almost, the sound, first time. they almost sound cranky I'm, that you took away the urge. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because they've, they've only known the last, you know, 15, 20 years of their life of what do I got to do today? I got to get a fix. And now their life's going to change because they don't spend all that time chasing that needle. A fix that can end your life. That's exactly right. And it's amazing. Some of these people are uh, people that we look up to, CEOs who are functioning on the heroin. They're not even getting high anymore. The heroin just keeps them from not having the withdrawal effects. Amazing. Amazing. And uh, also some actors and, and singers and things like that. Um, so it's it's controversial. We do a good job of hiding where we're at. We don't we don't tell people where our our residential place placements are. You know, our clinic is our clinic. We drive you there. Uh, if somebody figures out, you know, somebody famous is at the clinic, you know, we've got we got a couple options of bringing you in the side door or the front door. Neither one of them are extremely private. But uh, usually uh, nobody in the office tells anybody that anybody was there. I, we've never had a problem with, with somebody taking pictures. Usually what happens is, uh, you know, the, the, the people who go through the program are very happy, and they don't want people to not go there, so they don't even tell where it's at. So we've, we've been pretty lucky so far. And I'd like to say thank you to Dr. John Huber. Dr. Huber, before we go, I know okay. um, your organization, Mainstream Mental Health, do you have a website? We have a website. It is MainstreamMentalHealth.org, but you can also get there through another tag, DrPsycho.org. And that's a little easier to remember. It's D-R-P-S-Y-C-H-O dot O-R-G, DrPsycho.org. It's got all our podcasts. In fact, uh, I think our last couple of meetings we did are actually up on Spotify under my mainstream mental health radio. So, Peter, you can go back and listen to those if you'd like. And I'd like to say thank you to Dr. John Huber. It's always enlightening when he joins us, and we hope to see you again soon. Thank you, Dr. Huber. Thank you so much. My pleasure.
And you've been listening to WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. And we'll be back. And we're back. And I'm pleased to welcome here for our final conversation on WIP Sunday, Maggie Margaret Anderson, author of the new book, Getting Smart About Race, an American Conversation. Good morning, Maggie Anderson. Good morning, Peter. You want to talk about things that we don't talk about in polite society, don't you? Well, I'm afraid we don't have enough conversation about race, certainly not in mostly white communities, but it is one of our most pressing national issues, and I would like to see people engage it more thoroughly and from the point of view of information and research, not just opinion. Why do you think we avoid it? Well, I think for white people, they uh, we avoid talking about race because we're too afraid of being called a racist. Um, no one wants to be individually blamed for this. And in order to protect themselves, I think white people remain silent about race. This is not true within uh, communities of color. But I think we have to overcome that fear, not worry so much about blame and be willing to explore this important topic. But it's very confusing. If I use the N-word in mixed society, people gasp and go, oh! But you get two minority people together and use the N-word, and they giggle and carry on. Well, you have to understand that phenomenon in the context of power differences. If I turn around to my woman friend and I say, girl, what are you doing? She is not going to be insulted because we are peers. I don't have power over my dear friend. Um, and that's not true when you're talking about black, white, or Latino, white, or any other combination where there actually are structured into society power differences between us. So what may be you know, a conversation among equals and among peers is not the same thing in other contexts. Absolutely, and I agree with you on that one. Um, how did we get this pickle? Oh, my gosh, that is quite a question, Peter. <laughs> and the other hard question is how we're going to get out of it. Absolutely. Um, we got into this because of a long history of the way that race has been constructed in American society, which has its own particularities, but this is also a global phenomenon, though it takes different forms in different nations. But to some extent, we have inherited this problem from history, but we reproduce it through our everyday actions. Um, and I do want to make a slight um, aside here, because I've been listening to your show since 6 a.m. to get a feel for what this is. And I want to give a big shout-out to the wonderful program that opened up at 6 o'clock about Art Garage in Mount Airy. Because I think that project, which I knew nothing about until hearing your show this morning, is a wonderful example of the kind of action everyday people can do to help us overcome some of the inequalities that we see by virtue of race as well as by social class and other differences. So here's an example, as far as I could tell, where everyday people came together on behalf of children. I mean, how fabulous is that? And with limited resources, um, created a community, have created a sense of pride among these young people, and have done so through engaging these young people in creative projects. I was very moved by that. So thank you for that uh, opening segment of the first thing that I heard this morning. My pleasure. 
my pleasure. Um, but how do we have a conversation on race without people getting defensive? Well, people will get defensive. I've been teaching about racial inequality for more years than I like to count up. And my students in my classes typically enter my course, at least they have taken the risk of taking a class on race. Um, my white students are often afraid that they will say something where the students of color in the room will jump on them. Students of color are often afraid of being insulted or hurt by something that one of the white students might say. So what I have learned over the years is I have to create the conditions in that conversation where people will feel safe, where they will feel that they can explore things in an atmosphere of trust. And that takes work as a teacher, just as it would take work in any other organization. And one of the things I'll point out for people who want to have these conversations is that in the appendix of my book, I've provided some links to some excellent websites that talk about how you can establish safe ground rules for such discussions, and then I provide conversational points and questions that people could take on, both in work organizations, schools, churches, other community organizations, where they are willing to take on this hard work. But it is hard work, and there are no simple answers to it. Yes, indeed, it's hard work. Um, some people, though, very often white people, think, um, you know, yeah, race is, race is difficult. People get discriminated against. I, my, my Jewish ancestors were discriminated against. My Irish ancestors were discriminated against. My Polish ancestors were, ancestors were discriminated against. What's the difference? Well, you're right to point out that many groups, um, particularly different white ethnic and cultural groups over our nation's history, have experienced some horrendous practices of exclusion and hatred. Um, I think the difference is that if you look at the history of white immigration, because the examples you gave were such, um, those folks entered the United States at a time when the economy was expanding. They were able, through very hard work, and there are some extraordinarily noble stories there, including in my own family, um, but they were never faced with, for one thing, the arriving here in chains. They came voluntarily. At the time, they were getting a foothold in the American economy and different niches of the labor market. African Americans in the South were being explicitly held in place by Jim Crow segregation, which was legally mandated segregation. And so the histories of people in our nation have been very different. And it matters when you entered and what the conditions were at the time you entered. And this is not to minimize the group hatred that Jewish people have faced and continue to face, or that the Irish, who were defined as the black Irish because of their religious and cultural differences, there's no doubt that those experiences were hateful and hurtful. Um, but the conditions under which those people were able to enter the U.S. economy and succeed were really very different. All right. Um. You know, I, sh I can add to that, Peter, that we, you know, one of the things I do in my book is I make the distinction between prejudice and racism, prejudice being something that can be directed by and against any group. 
Um, that's an individual attitude. It's an individual attitude of hatred. The classic example of that are overt racial bigots, which we're sadly seeing more of today. But racism is a social and historical construction. It's not just about attitudes. It's about how we have built our fundamental social institutions in ways that have created different opportunities for different groups. And that's an important distinction. I think people think of racism typically in individualistic terms. But as a sociologist, I look at racism as a social and historical construction that has created the inequalities we are witnessing today. All right. Then let's look at it, try and look at it from that perspective, in that affirmative action. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of folks crazy on both sides of the coin. Correct. Um, I mean, I'll say myself, I think I have been a beneficiary of affirmative action. I got my first job as a faculty member at a time when affirmative action on behalf of women was being taken very seriously. And what it meant was that universities, like other employers, could no longer simply use the old boy network to call up their friends and invite somebody for a job. With affirmative action, laws are put into place that require equal opportunity. Um, there's a myth about affirmative action that people who get jobs because of affirmative action are somehow not qualified. I have no question that I was qualified for my job, but opportunities were open to me that prior to that would never have been. And so the beneficiaries of affirmative action uh, over our last what, 30, 40 years have not been solely people of color. They have also included women and the families where women now have professional jobs they would not have otherwise had. I think the resistance to affirmative action, which frankly is not so much a policy anymore, there's been so much resistance to it, um, other than equal employment legislation, affirmative action is somewhat a thing of the past now. But there are myths about it that somehow people who are not qualified are getting jobs that others deserve. And the data simply say otherwise. Um, people who benefited from affir affirmative action were people who were already well positioned to take advantage of the opening of opportunities. And as we look back on it, we can see that affirmative action in the roughly decade of the 1970s and somewhat into the 80s, has really been one of the drivers that has helped produce a larger African-American and Latino middle class because it opened opportunities otherwise denied. But at the same time, we have an environment in Washington, D.C. that seems to be working against these things. Well, it's not just Washington, D.C. I mean, if you, I don't want to focus our whole conversation on affirmative action, but, you know, there's been a lot of white resistance to the concept of affirmative action. It's as if white, some white people, and I emphasize some, think that somehow other people are getting something for nothing or breaking into line ahead of them. Um, and I think that where that sentiment is coming from is many white people, the working class in particular, are being very much disadvantaged by some of the economic and social changes going on in our world. Um, I heard your earlier listener actually say something I'm sorry to say I want to correct, because in fact, the number of people having to hold multiple jobs has been increasing over the last four years. 
and jobs in the manufacturing sector have actually been decreasing. And you can verify that by looking at Department of Labor data. That's hurting a lot of white working class people. It is also hurting people of color who have relied on hard work and often multiple jobs to get ahead. Um, and for both workers who are minority workers as well as the white working class, the manufacturing industry historically has been a place where people could get decent work with some benefits, even without advanced education. Uh, and that is going away, despite what your previous um, guest said. The manufacturing industry may be coming back anecdotally for people here and there, but the data show that, in fact, manufacturing jobs are on the decline. And they have been an economic driver, um, both for people of color as well as the white working class. Sadly, I think what happens when people feel disadvantaged is they don't tend to understand the larger forces shaping that disadvantage. And as a result, they scapegoat people. And the scapegoats in our culture have typically been African-American and now Latino immigrants. All right. Now let me shift it just a little then and talk mm -hmm. about the squad in Congress, the ladies in yeah. Congress, um, minority, and people have a lot of problems with them or seem to have a lot of problems with them. Is that racism? You know, I don't know the particulars about what people think about that. I know what our president said, and he's wrong. He's talking about four women of color, duly elected to the U.S. House of Representatives, three of whom are American-born people of color, and one of whom is a legal immigrant. So I think, unfortunately, what that did was to just fuel stereotypes um, that are both sexist and racist. And we're listening to... WIP Sunday here on 94WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. We're talking with Maggie Anderson, socialist, and we're talking about conversations on race. Now, Maggie, I need you to stay with me. Got to run a few commercials. We'll be back Thank in you. just a bit. And we're back. It's WIP Sunday. We're talking with sociologist Maggie Anderson. Her book, her discussion on a conversation about race. My name's Peter Solomon. If it's not affirmative action, um, what should we be talking about? Um, can I make one aside here? Because sure. I think this was a slip, but you introduced me right before the break as a socialist. So I was very happy to hear you say sociologist when you just reintroduced me. I'm sorry. Um, anyhow, what should we be talking about? We should be talking about creating a more socially and economically just society. Um, this is not just about people of color. This is about people live, living full lives in a world where people are treated with dignity and where everyone's talents are fully recognized by the society that we have created. When we have the forms of inequality that we can see now, uh, we create a world that is not safe for people, and that's something that certainly people of color can attest to um, in such things as having to educate their children about how to respond should a police officer stop you on the street. This is the everyday lived reality that people experience in a racially unjust society. Huh. And I think that thinking about social justice changes the conversation, then it's not just affirmative action as if it is all about someone else. We're in this together. 
Oh, absolutely. Um, but at the same time, I'm Caucasian. My children are Caucasian. I've had, had that discussion with my children because majority children can be just as feisty talking with the police as minority children. Yes, of course they can, but they don't necessarily put their lives and their bodies at risk in doing so. If I get stopped driving too fast down a country road, I do not have to worry too much that I'm going to be assaulted by that police officer. And that is simply not true for people of color. Friends of mine who are African-American academics, even wealthier than I am in some cases, have themselves been stopped in their own neighborhood as if they are not supposed to be there. And I think one of the things people will find in my book, um, there's a whole chapter in there called The Feeling of Race, because I think as a white person, I have to develop some empathy to understand that my experience walking through this world is different than that of friends of mine who happen to be African-American or Latino who are routinely, on an everyday basis, insulted by what are now called microaggressions or, at worst, assaulted on the streets. Where should these conversations begin? Should they begin in the schools? Should they begin in houses of worship? Should they begin in the living room? You've answered your own question, Peter. (laughs) (laughs) I think people have to start this conversation in places where they are most able to do that. Churches are a wonderful place to do that because churches are places where communities come together uh, toward a common purpose based in a spiritual practice. And what we know from decades of research is that interracial relationships are more likely to be positively developed in places where people of common status um, come together with a common goal and with some institutional support with a common project. Churches are certainly like that. Sadly, churches are one of our most segregated institutions in this country. Um, In my case, I believe in education. I am an educator. And so for me, schooling is a place where I can have some impact. And I think people have to make their own decisions about that. They can Such conversations can begin in workplaces, community organizations, or at the family dinner table. And my hope is that my brief little conversational book will provide people with some knowledge and resources for doing that. Do you have a website, Maggie? I do not have a website other than my university page, and that is not really designed with the public in mind. I am on Twitter, uh, MLA underline Anderson, and that's with an E-N at the end. Um, And, of course, I have an email accessible through the university site. And what do you want people to do? Just have the conversation is right enough? No, I want people to decide what they can do to make a difference. That's why I acknowledged the art garage that you've had on at 6 o'clock, because that's such a great example. Most of us don't have the resources to transform federal policy or, you know, even statewide policy. But we can create projects within our own little small universe that do bring people together. And I think people need to make a decision about where they can best do that. Most of our largest changes 
that we have made toward progress in race relations in this country have really come through the work of ordinary people who mobilized within their communities um, to make a change they thought was necessary. So I don't think we need to think so much about taking the whole world on as deciding in the here and now where you live, what's a small part that you can play. And for me, educating yourself about the reality that we face is the first step. And I'd like to say thank you to Margaret Anderson, Maggie Anderson, author of the new book, Getting Smart About Race, an American Conversation. Thank you, ma'am. It's been good. Thank you, Peter. My pleasure. And it's been another edition of WIP Sunday here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. Stay tuned for Sports Talk with Sunny Hill. Always interesting and provocative discussion in the living room. Your opinion, Sonny's reactions, I know I'll be listening. And finally, nothing left to say, but be with you next week.